1521, United States Department of State Bureau of Consular Affairs versus Legal Assistance for Vietnamese Asylum Seekers, Inc. Mr. Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case involves a challenge to undertakings by the United States in connection with a comprehensive plan of action, an international agreement entered into by 50 countries in 1989 to address the migrant crisis in Southeast Asia in the 1980s. By 1989, 750,000 migrants from Vietnam alone had fled to other countries. Some countries began to turn back the migrants at sea, which resulted in a loss of life, and Hong Kong revoked its prior policy of treating the arrived migrants as presumptive refugees and began to treat them instead as illegal aliens. The Comprehensive Plan of Action, or CPA, was designed to defuse this crisis to protect those migrants who genuinely feared persecution, to save the loss of life, or to prevent the loss of life, and also to control further illegal immigration. Under the CPA, Vietnamese and Laotians were permitted to land in Hong Kong and other countries and to seek refugee status there. Those who were screened in or found to be refugees under international standards and under the auspices of the UNHCR were permitted to remain temporarily and seek resettlement in the third countries. But a central tenet of the CPA was those that were screened and found not to be refugees would be repatriated to their uh, countries of origin. That would be either voluntarily, it was hoped, or if need be, eventually involuntarily. Mr. Needham, may I ask you to clarify at the outset uh, what the government's position is with respect to the statement by the respondents that the uh, respondents requested the State Department to seek from the Hong Kong government an extension of the undertaking process these people uh, to, cover, to cover the proceedings on remand, and that the department refused so that a remand would cause the Hong Kong government's undertaking to lapse and would likely subject respondents to immediate forcible repatriation. Justice Ginsburg, I'm, I'm afraid there must have been some confusion. I, I'm informed by the State Department that the, the State Department did not refuse that, and I'm informed that uh, last week there were discussions uh, uh, approaching the government of Hong Kong about this. Those discussions, again, were taken up uh, over the weekend. And uh, just this morning, we received from Hong Kong a letter in which Hong Kong — and I just received it. I've given it to opposing counsel, but we did not have time to transmit it to the court this morning. Uh, in that letter, Hong Kong uh, confirms a request made by the United States that the 24 Vietnamese migrants who are listed in an attached memorandum, who are the uh, plaintiffs in this case and those in Lisa Lee, basically the migrants for whom we previously had requested and obtained assurances, uh, would not be uh, repatriated before January 1997, January 31, 1997, or the completion of this case, whichever comes first. I took that to be what you represented to this Court in your motion to join in, in, in your response to the motion to join additional parties, because there you said that the government obtained insurances from the Hong Kong government that both the Lisa Lee plaintiffs and the plaintiffs in this case would not be forcibly repatriated during appellate and Supreme Court proceedings. Right. Well, am I correct in saying the appellate proceedings would encompass 
whatever happens in the Lisa Lee case in the D.C. Circuit? On, on, on remand through January 31st. The, and the, this case on remand. And this case on remand. The government of Hong Kong is understandably getting somewhat impatient and also with the reversion of Hong Kong uh, to uh, China on June 30th, the, the government of Hong Kong is, is eager to have the, uh, the return of, of the migrants uh, completed. And uh, especially given the recent enactment of Section 633 of the Immigra- Illegal Immigration Reform Act, which removes the statutory basis for the claim, the circumstances of this case have substantially changed. Uh, but, yes. But, but your view is, uh, your representation is that it's January 30th or the termination of proceedings here and the D.C. Circuit, whichever is earlier, that's January correct. 30th date, or the termination of the proceedings. That's, that's correct. That has been asked for or that has been received? It was requested. Uh, it was and, requested. And, and received this morning. We just received back a fax this morning from Hong Kong. Well, saying we, that the Hong Kong government has, has agreed to that. Yes. Yes. And if we were to vacate and remand, would you have objection to the D.C. Court entering a stay based on those terms? A, a stay um, — in, in, in this case, a stay is not necessary because no injunction was ever entered in this case. The district court granted summary judgment for the government, and the Court of Appeals remanded for further proceedings consistent with its, with its decision. In the, in but the, if we were to vacate the, and, and remand, what would the situation be? The situation would be, pursuant to these representations, uh, Hong Kong would not, would not uh, involuntarily repatriate uh, anyone — in, th- in this case, or the Lisa Lee case, uh, 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 before January 31st, unless the case was earlier terminated. Um, the D.C. Circuit had not earlier entered a stay, is that correct? It, in the Lisa Lee case, it did, because the district court in the Lisa Lee case had entered injunctions based on the panel's ruling in this case. The district court in that case entered a series of injunctions which uh, the, the D.C. Circuit for a month declined to stay. We filed a stay application here, and then when that stay application was ripe uh, for consideration, the D.C. Circuit entered a stay, and the, the, I think the representations we previously had obtained from Hong Kong uh, were perhaps instrumental in that, in that stay. A stay of what? It certainly wasn't a stay of Hong Kong's deportation. No, a stay. A stay, our, a stay. our writ doesn't run that far yet, does right. it? Right. No. It was a stay of the injunctions requiring or uh, preventing the uh, State Department from declining to process the visa applications in Hong Kong. And the, the, basically, the, the stay plus Hong Kong's assurances maintains uh, the status quo. Of course, the, that uh, — uh, that representation does not prevent any, anyone from voluntarily uh, repatriating. We're only talking about involuntary, uh, involuntary uh, repatriations. Mr. Needler, as long as we're, <clears throat> we've gotten into facts, may I ask you about the government's position on one other factual issue, which I'm not sure of? The respondents, as I recall, made the representation, uh, uh, this goes to the merits of their claim, uh, that with respect to refugees who had been screened out, who were in Hong Kong from other countries than Vietnam. The United States uh, continues uh, to, or or has, I guess, never refused uh, to process um, immigrant visa applications, and that it is only those from Vietnam who have been the subject of this policy pursuant to this agreement. I, uh, that interests me because it seems to be a response to the government's position that, in fact, the 
uh, the reason for the government's action is not the nationality of the plaintiffs, uh, but the illegality of their status. And the respondents are saying there are plenty of others with equally illegal status, but if they are from a different country, they are being treated differently. Is that is, — is the respondent's claim factually correct, uh, as you understand it? Well, the, the — the, uh, let, me, let me explain it this way. The basis for the government's policy is that persons who are screened out under the CPA must return to their country of origin rather than applying in, uh, in the country of first asylum. Does the CPA cover anything other than Vietnamese refugees? It, it, it also covers uh, Laotians. Laotians. But in Hong Kong, the, it, it, it's true, the vast majority, in fact virtually all of the migrants subject to the CPA in Hong Kong uh, are from Vietnam. But the, the, this, was, this is a situation in which, in fact, there are no other aliens similarly situated to those covered by the CPA. The CPA was a unique but perhaps precedent-setting international agreement to address migrant crises of a, of a sort that the world is unfortunately very familiar with over the last two years. So you're saying years. the class, save for Vietnamese and Laotians, is an empty class? Well, b yes, because the CPA was entered into to address a, a migrant crisis that was itself country-specific. Right, and but I think if I understand your answer, it is, there are no refugees from other countries than Vietnam and Laos in Hong Kong who have been screened out and who are applying for immigrant visa status. There are no such individuals. Is that correct? Un under the CPA, that's correct. Well, not under the CPA. I, regardless I, of the CPA, they're either there or they're not there. Are there any such making applications? I, I, I frankly cannot represent whether there are people from other, from, from other countries Besides, uh, uh, besides Vietnam and Laos, this, this agreement this, this, was — This class includes only those people. Yes. Because this, the CPA doesn't apply, and you wouldn't be following that with respect right. to nationals the, from any country. That, that's correct. The predicate for the application of this policy is the CPA, in which the United States and other countries undertook as a way of get of. I mean, let me be clear about this. The, the, the CPA is a comprehensive agreement that has a number of parts to it, and the central part was in order to get the — countries of first asylum to allow people to land in the first place. They had to have some assurance of, of, of a screening opportunity and, and those found to be refugees would be resettled, but an, an important corollary is those found not to be refugees would be returned. And that the, the people found not to be refugees includes those who happen to have current visa petitions filed on behalf of them in the United States um, and others. And the United States, uh, in consultation with UNHCR and other countries of first asylum, concluded that it was essential to carrying out the CPA to maintain that with respect to uh, those migrants who were covered by the CPA. Again, this was a, this was a problem migrant crisis-specific agreement, country-specific agreement. And in the conduct of foreign relations in addressing migrant crises. So the CPA arose as a result out of massive migration of Vietnamese and Laotians? That's correct. Not anybody else? That's correct. And, and, and it, was that, it was that problem that the CPA addressed. And we think it would, it would be, it would be uh, odd indeed if the United States and its conduct of foreign relations where it can treat different nations differently for legitimate foreign policy con concerns could not also treat the nationals of those different nations differently depending on the circumstances that have arisen in the, in the bilateral or unilateral, uh, I mean um, uh, multilateral uh, arrangements and also just uh, in the real world, world taking account of what has caused the outflow of migrants. Most migrant crises are country specific resulting from the internal conditions of a particular country. Mr. Needler, in the proceedings below, 
uh, as I understand the record, the government argued that there was discrimination against Vietnamese nationals, but it could be justified on a rational basis. And as I understand the argument made by the government now, is there's no discrimination at all. And on a secondary point, uh, I think the record discloses that um, in the courts below, uh, the government did not argue that the language of the statute referring to issuance of a visa did not include accepting a visa application. Were either of these arguments raised by the government below? Well, in, in the, going to the second one uh, first uh, for the mm -hmm. moment, the, the, we, we did argue that I, I think the argument that, the, that, that uh, respondents make is that we, that we did not argue that the, that the question of consular venue is separately addressed and, and, and exclusively addressed by 8 U.S.C. 1202A, mm -hmm. which says that a person shall apply for a, for a visa in such mm -hmm. locations as mm -hmm as the Secretary shall prescribe by regulation. Um, but we, we, we certainly did argue that this was that, that uh, 1152A1, which bars preference or priority or discrimination in the issuance of visas, did not apply to consular venue. And the, the argument that, that, uh, that consular venue is separately addressed by 1202A is just a further argument in, in, in support of our basic claim that, the, that, the, that, the, uh, that 1152A1 did not apply to this um, uh, at all, and in fact, what we what we did argue in the in the court of appeals is that the regulation that the secretary issued, uh, which changed on appeal, and the court of appeals applied the amended regulation on appeal, that that was issued pursuant, as we point out in our brief, to the very specific authority in 1202A, uh, which is the which is the consular venue uh, statutory provision. So we think all these arguments. Uh, were presented. How about the discrimination point? In, in the lower court, we we argued that this was that this was uh, uh, not discrimination. Uh, at least that that's uh, that's my understanding. And also that, uh, but beyond that, we the the position here that this is that uh, I don't know if one calls it justification or or it, it's not discrimination. That you can look at it either way. That discrimination is a conclusion that that, in, that encompasses whatever justifications may be offered. Uh, f uh, for the policy, or that it's not discrimination uh, in the first place. If the, if, if, the, if the question just focused on whether there were distinctions, uh, then the statute would use distinctions, but it uses the word discrimination, which I think we would, we would view as being, as being a conclusion, and, that, and read into that should be, particularly on something like consular venue, the ability of the United States to take into, into account nationality considerations. As we point out in our brief, when Congress enacted this provision in 1965, it had long been the policy of the United States before then and since then, for example, to adopt special procedures for security purposes for, for aliens from, from particular nations, from communist bloc countries for a while. And as the, uh, uh, the, there's a, a declaration cited at page 17 of, our, of the petition that describes uh, that history and describes what was before Congress in 1965. I think that goes to, to both, to, to actually two points, that 1152A1, uh, the non-discrimination provision, didn't apply to the applications for visas uh, in the first place, but even if it did, Congress couldn't have not, could not have meant to absolutely prohibit, this, uh, ir irrespective of the justification. 
uh, the taking into account of nationality in the processing, in the, re, in the, in the uh, procedures for the filing, the, the venue, and the review of, of, uh, of visa applications, that the non-discrimination provision was really intended uh, from the outset to apply only to the allocation of, 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 uh, of visas. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, the government now urges us to uh, vacate and remand because of the very recent amendment to Section 1152A1. Uh, does that recent amendment cover all of the respondents' claims? Didn't they make constitution, they, constitutional they arguments and other things that haven't been addressed by the Court and that might not be covered by Right. They, they, made, they made two further arguments. First of all, on the statutory argument, as we said in our, said in our brief, uh, the, the recent amendment we think is dispositive. And one more, one more piece of information on that I'd like to call the Court's attention to. At page 21 of respond, Respondent's Brief in footnote 13, they cite a letter that was sent to the, uh, to, uh, by uh, 45 members of Congress to the President in early August, urging the President to uh, drop his support for the provision of the bill that was ultimately enacted in six, uh, 633 that was then in conference, uh, 45 members of Congress, and they said apparently those provisions were included in the House and Senate bills at the behest of the State Department in order to overturn the adverse result of the Lavis decision. So it's entirely clear that the members of Congress, uh, when considering this provision, when it finally emerged from conference, knew that it was, that it was in, proposed for the purpose of and would have the effect of, of overturning the and decision. Mr. Needler, the respondents have sought only injunctive and declarative relief. That's correct. They, did, they have not sought damage. No, that's correct. And, and, and we think it's clear, quite aside from this legislative history, making clear that this was, this was intended to apply uh, to this very situation. The usual principles governing prospective relief would make clear that it's effective well, prospectively. The respondents have come back and said, oh, but we also want reparative injunctive relief looking to the past. Do you know what that's all about? Well, uh, uh, not entirely, because it, 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 it would seem to us that any, that any injunctive relief in this case would direct the, the Secretary of State to provide for the issuance of visas in Hong Kong in the future. And that's the very reason why prospective relief ha cannot be granted if it would be in conflict with a, with a, new, with a, uh, with a new statute. Um, and the, the, the uh, conference and House reports on this legislation say that it was just intended to clarify the fact that the Secretary of State has unreviewable authority to establish visa venue uh, rules. So it's clear that, that Congress was ratifying the Secretary's interpretation of the statute and intended, and intended to make the, uh, maintain the status quo. In fact, the text of, the, of 633 uh, says that uh, nothing in this paragraph, meaning 1152A1, shall be construed to prohibit the, the Secretary from um, uh, uh, establishing procedures for the filing of applications. Respondents were asking this Court to construe 1152A1 in a way that would apply uh, to, um, uh, to, to bar the Secretary from doing exactly that. So it seems to me the statute speaks sp directly to what this Court is being asked to do. Mr. Like Needler, with respect to um, the two issues that were not uh, decided by the D.C. Circuit, they, they, they haven't been considered, and you can see that they are in right. the case and would be ripe for consideration. 
But the case, this case, uh, and Lisa Lee both raising the same questions, but going on different tracks, uh, somewhat uh, confusing, uh, disorderly. What is the government's plan for proceeding? Should we grant your request to vacate and remand to the D.C. Circuit for reconsideration in light of the very recent legislative change? Excuse me. We we would seek an expeditious uh, response in the lower court, whether that would would, uh, involve presenting the, the whole matter to the to the full court, or, or waiting for the panel to rule would be would be a different uh, a different um, a, a question that we would have to we would have to discuss. Currently, you have a panel in this case and an en bank court in Lisa Lee. Right, that is correct. Uh, now, there there is uh, we we recognize the confusion, and there is there is something to be said. We acknowledge for this court going ahead and deciding the case now that it's been briefed and argued. And, and presented to it. Our suggestion of a remand in this case all along, however, was, was based on the, this Court's usual course when there's been an intervening change in the law and also when, when, uh, when other issues are in the case that haven't been addressed. I would like briefly to address those two other issues, getting back to Justice O'Connor's question on them. On the, the first of the other two claims is one that the, that the policy is arbitrary and capricious in violation of, of the Administrative Procedure Act. There are two problems with that. The first is that judicial review of that claim is precluded, as was judicial review of the statutory claim. And that is, that is itself true for two reasons. One, the comprehensive judicial review provisions of the INA established that review is precluded uh, under, the, under the INA, or excuse me, under the APA, and also uh, Visa matters, including consular venue matters, are of the sort traditionally committed to agency discretion and therefore barred judicial review is barred for that reason as well. With respect to the preclusion of review, I would just like to point out that the, that the INA contains provisions for judicial review of deportation orders of people who have entered the United States and also for judicial review of people who are seeking to enter the United States, but in the latter category, only when somebody has arrived at our shores and is in exclusion proceedings and can seek review in habeas corpus, but not because exclusion matters are generally appropriate for judicial review, but because the person is in custody and therefore has access to to habeas corpus. Um, In this this Court's decision in Brownell versus Tom Wei-Shung in 1956, the Court held that an alien in the United States could have access to the APA to seek judicial review in an exclusion matter. But the Court pointed out it was not suggesting, of course, that an alien who had never reached our shores would be able to do that. And it also cited legislative history of the 52 Act in which an exclusive review provision was deleted in which the in which uh, Congress made clear that it was not providing for review of consular officer decisions or changing review uh, under, the, under, the IN, uh, under the INA. Then in 1961, Congress came along and specifically overturned the Brownell decision and provided for judicial review in exclusion only, in exclusion matters only in habeas corpus and not otherwise, re- intending to remove the APA, the very basis on which respondents seek to uh, uh, bring a challenge in this case. And, in fact, the Court — we spell this out at pages 25 to 28 of our brief. And, in fact, the, uh, the House report on that, on that legislation says that permitting an APA suit would, quote, give recognition to a fallacious doctrine that an alien has a right to enter this country, which he may litigate in the courts of the United States against the U.S. government as a defendant. Well, if that was true with respect to aliens who had reached our shores, then a fortiori it would be true with respect to aliens who are in Hong Kong 
who have, who have no rights under the United States Constitution with respect to their admission and no statutory rights that they can invoke in court. But even if this Court was, were somehow to get around the preclusion of judicial review, we think that Respondent's APA claim would fail on the, on the merits. This is certainly not an arbitrary and capricious policy. The explanation is spelled out at pages 217 to 219 of the Joint Appendix in this case, in which the, uh, the, the cable that went to the field in, in October of 1994 explains that this uh, policy was uh, reinstated after a careful review, after concerns were received from UNHCR and other first and first asylum countries that uh, screening or processing uh, immigrant visas in Hong Kong and other first asylum countries was discouraging people from returning voluntarily and therefore was seriously undermining the, the comprehensive plan of action. The State Department also pointed out that since 1990, when it, when it had adopted the opposite view, it believed that conditions in Vietnam had improved and therefore it was appropriate to insist that people return there before filing for visas to come to the U.S. Mr. Needler, are you aware of any case where questions such as these uh, were raised uh, below, not touched there, and where this Court responded to them as not as a court of review, but the only court to pass on them? not specifically. The court surely has the power to do it, and we don't. And we we don't deny that. And 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 frankly, we believe the other two claims can be very readily dis- disposed of. And so we. That's one of the reasons why, on remand, we would expect the court of appeals to readily dispose of the claims. The court of appeals itself, for example, applied the change in the regulation on appeal, even though respondents were invoking claims under the prior re- regulation on the theory that no one has a vested right in receiving a visa, and if there's a change in the law, that should be applied. We would expect the Court to do that. In fact, we would expect Congress understood, knowing the law of this decision, that that would be the rule and that change in the law uh, would be applied. That's another, another uh, piece of information. But uh, specifically, not, uh, no, but we, we, we understand that the Court has the power. Uh, if there are no further questions. May I just ask one question, Mr. Nindy? Is it still the government's primary submission, though, that we should simply GVR at this time rather than addressing these issues? Yes, that would, that would be yes. it. That's our primary submission. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Mr. Wolf will hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are two issues that must be resolved in favor of affirmance in order to, in in favor of respondents in order to affirm in this case. The first issue is whether the statute, Section 1152A1, was violated by the Department's policy when that policy was in existence and before the new statute came along. The second issue is whether the change instituted in September 30, 1996, deprives respondents of their right to relief. What is the relief? You, if you were to win on the first issue as you have described it, what would your relief be? Well, the relief that we would suggest, um, Justice Souter, is relief, is reparative relief, relief that could, insofar as is possible, restore plaintiffs to the position that they would have been in were it not for the Department's illegal conduct. So, for instance, uh, in the case of somebody who had been — Well, do you, do you concede that if the statute, in fact, was intended to be retroactive, that relief would be impossible? If the statute was intended to be retroactive, that relief would be impossible. But there's nothing in the language of the statute indicating any retroactive intent. And under this Court's decision in Landgraf, a new law cannot 
be applied retroactively to conduct predating its enactment if that conduct was illegal. So the new law cannot reach back and render lawful conduct that was unlawful at the time that conduct was, was took place. And certainly, we are respondents are entitled to relief that would but, remedy the effects of the illegal conduct. But what, what, what you're asking, you, you still haven't gotten a final judgment in this case. And what you're asking for is, is some sort of a declaration or injunction that uh, the, the Secretary may, may not require repatriation from Hong Kong in order to process visas. Now, the, tra- the traditional view is that we apply the law in effect when, the, when, the, when our court decides the case or the Court of Appeals applies the law when it deci- in effect when it decides it. If the law in effect now is that your clients are not entitled to any statutory relief, uh, I, I, I don't see where your idea of reparative relief goes anywhere in the light of the new statute. Mr. Chief Justice, first, just to clarify the type of relief that we're seeking, we're seeking an order mandating the processing and the expeditious processing in Hong Kong of our clients' visa applications, not an order that would have anything to do with their forcible repatriation, per se. But if, if, if under pres- uh, presently enforced law, you're not entitled to that, the fact that you might have been entitled to it uh, a year ago is, is, is something that a court ordinarily won't recognize. Well, certainly were the statute to be one that uh, prohibited this court from issuing an injunction, or from, uh, from granting the depart- granting respondents the relief they're seeking, then that would be correct. But the situation here is that, is that the respondents had a substantive right to be, to not be discriminated against. Well, what in- do you mean by a substantive right? Well, we had, at the time, we had an expectation, a reasonable expectation, that we would not be discriminated against in the issuance of a visa. The, under Landsgraf, the new statute cannot reach back and make determinations. Well, that's that true if you're made. seeking damages, but just well, your, your whole effort here was prospective. The, the principle of non-retroactivity, uh, the principle concerning retroactivity applies, as I understand it, regardless of the type of relief that's being sought. The point is, is that this Court has the power to remedy the past effects of the illegal conduct. So there's nothing to prevent this Court from restoring respondents to the situation they would have been in were it not for the the illegal conduct. But I think you have conceded that we don't have that power if, number one, you are not seeking damages, and you're not, and number two, the statute is, in fact, to be applied retroactively. On those two assumptions, there's nothing we or any court could do, even on your, your, your own premise, but apply the new statute, and that would be the end of the case. Justice Souter, that's correct if the statute were to be applied retroactively. So everything turns on the retroactivity of the statute. But, Mr. And why, why shouldn't that be decided in the Court of Appeals where, where normally the, the, the first cut at an issue like that is, of course, not taken in this Court? Well, I would say that there are, there are two reasons in this particular case. The first reason is a concern regarding forcible repatriation. The Department has uh, received certain representations from the Hong Kong government that last till Janu- that lapsed on January 31st, 1997. Uh, given the proceedings in this case and, and the pace that it has gone at, we can't be confident that on remand we would be able to get uh, relief after the appellate process and so on before the lapse of that time. The processing itself. Mr. Wolf, the, the D.C. Circuit was prepared to hear the Lisa Lee case and bank on September 19th and deferred that only because the proceeding was pending here. Why would you not 
think that they would proceed expeditiously were we to vacate and remand? Well, it, it's uncertain how the D.C. Circuit would uh, handle this case. They may send it first back to the district court, in which case we would have to have proceedings before the district court come back up. But and it, it, at, on, under what possible scenario where they send it back to the district court when it is the, the, quest, the decision of the three-judge panel that is the problem, not the initial — and the, the district court was just following the orders that the three-judge panel gave. Well, Justice Ginsburg, that gets me to the next point about why a remand would be inappropriate in this case, and that is, is that nothing about the change in statute alters the fact that the Department's conduct was illegal at the time that conduct took place. Respondents should not have to go back to the D.C. Circuit and relitigate that, that issue on remand. A much more appropriate disposition in this case. The D.C. DC Circuit was poised to litigate it and bank. The D.C. Circuit was poised to litigate it. And, it, and the fact that the cert petition was granted and heard doesn't make what the D.C. Circuit was intending to do uh, any less appropriate than when the D.C. Circuit ordered it. Well, for the same reasons, uh, Justice Ginsburg, that, that it may be improvident for uh, this Court to retain the certiorari petition, as we indicated in our, uh, in our supplemental brief, it may also be improvident for the uh, Court of Appeals, for the D.C. Circuit and Bonk, to retain, to consider this case yet again uh, on all of Why, the yet again, the, the very fact that the D.C. Circuit agreed to hear the case and bank <laughs> is a signal, is it not, that the Court was quite divided and was not content to let it rest with the panel decision. It was, it was a signal that the Court viewed it as a serious question, as, as, as this Court's granting of certiorari is such a signal. But for the same reason that this Court might want to uh, set, relinquish this case, the D.C. Circuit uh, on Bonk could, could, could do well the same. At any Wolf, I have a, an unrelated question. It has to do with the latest submission. Um, when you, you represented in the supplemental brief that um, a remand of the case would cause the Hong Kong government's undertaking to lapse and would likely subject respondents to immediate possible repatriation, that's a, a rather uh, startling representation. And when I look back at the um, pleading that wasn't even printed for for this court, it was the it was the government's response to your motion to join parties, and I saw when I read to Mr. Needler that the government represented that that they would obtain had obtained assurances from the Hong Kong government that no one would be forcibly repatriated during the appellate and Supreme Court proceedings in this case and in the Lisa Lee case. What was the basis for the? Uh, rather attention-grabbing representation you made in view of the government's representation that conflicted with it. Well, Justice Ginsburg, we were not clear based on that statement about whether or not uh, the representation would include uh, representations made on re uh, would include the situation on remand. We spoke with government counsel to ask whether they would make further rep get further representations from the Hong Kong government. We were left uh, certainly uh, with the clear uh, impression that that was not going to happen. And Before alleging to this Court that it would cause the immediate repatriation, do you not think it would have been appropriate to let us know that the government had something quite, said something quite 
the contrary, had represented to this Court that no one was going to be repatriated pending the proceedings here and in Lisa Lee. Well, as I indicated, um, Justice Ginsburg, that, that we believe there to be uh, some ambiguity, uh, significant ambiguity in that statement. We checked with the government. Apparently, they believe there to be enough ambiguity to go back to the Hong Kong government, uh, which they never told us they were going to do. Uh, and that, that ended up being the situation as it existed. It was described in rather definite terms that the department refused and that the uh, that would cause I mean, you didn't put anything, uh, you didn't indicate to us that anything was at all ambi- uh, ambiguous. I did not understand it at the time to be an, an ambiguous. If, if, if uh, it indicate, if, if it was ambiguous, I, I regret that, I, that, that, that we put it in those terms. But at the time, I did not see there to be any ambiguity. As I uh, this is not ambiguous, but, right. but you've just said to me that, well, you thought that that might be the problem and you were well aware that the government had already represented to this court that no one would be repatriated until, until this court and the D.C. Circuit were completed, proceedings were completed. As I said, as, as I understood the representations at the time, they only applied to the Supreme Court proceedings and the appellate courts in Lisa Lee, and if it may have been my misunderstanding, I, I would I, – would apologize for that. The departments, this, this court certainly has the power to remedy the past illegal conduct, and there's nothing in Section 1152A1 which deprives respondents of a remedy in this case. And therefore, if a violation occurred prior to the enactment of the new law, then this court certainly could uh, could offer respondents, uh, or the lower courts could certainly give respondents the relief that they are seeking. And the rule is no different in a case of an interpretive statute or well, a statute. M- M- Mr. Wolf, could, supposing somebody comes into court and says, up until 1994, I was entitled to receive a certain amount of money as a pension, but I realize you know, this is 1996. Now, Congress has said that that no longer obtains. But I just want a declaratory judgment that uh, I, I might have received it had I applied in 1994. Now, would a court grant that sort of a thing? Perhaps not. But in this particular case, the indiv- taking your hypothetical, if the person had applied for pension benefits in 94, been denied on illegal grounds in 94, and then in 96 the law changed, the individual would still be entitled to receive the pension benefits from 94 or an, an injunctive order uh, granting the, inju- the uh, benefits. What would be the po- possible conceivable meaning of, of the Congress's provision that the new statute applies to uh, um, all cases filed after a certain date? Isn't that the way the provision in the new law is, is worded? Uh, no, Justice Scalia. That's How do we know what cases the new law applies to? The new law states what it states. It's, it's a one. It's a one-sentence provision saying nothing in section 1152. Nothing in the former paragraph, meaning 1152A1, right, sh- shall be interpreted as uh, limiting the authority. But there's an effective date provision for the legislation too, isn't there? There is an effective date provision. And what does that say? There are various different effective dates provisions. There are 12 provisions that are specifically retroactive. This is not one of them. How does this one read? I'm not, there, I'm not sure, Justice Scalia, whether there's a — we checked, and I, I didn't recall seeing a, a, a default retroactive provision, but I believe the statute becomes effective on the date that it was enacted for, as a default provision. Mm-hmm. Where, and 
to that degree, it is certainly the case that should the Department today uh, institute a policy uh, refu- refusing to, pr- to uh, process visa applications on ground on, and discriminating in that process on grounds of race, nationality, or sex, then a person would not be able to uh, obtain relief and would have no right to obtain relief. I, I had thought that it had said all cases filed after a certain date, in which case uh, your, your argument wouldn't make any sense, because that obviously means, regardless of what the situation might have been on the facts, if your case is filed after a certain date, the new law applies. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. This, in our particular case, what is what the the important retroactive event is the secretary's determination, uh, pre- refusing to process immigrant visa applications at a time when he was required to do so. There's nothing in the statute indicating that the uh, indicating that the statute was intended to retroactively legalize conduct which was unlawful at the time. Yes, but you know, I have a little trouble with the language because. Your basic position is, as I understood the brief correctly, is that 1152A1 should be construed as a limitation on the authority of the Secretary. Section 11, yes, that is correct. But then, as amended, it says nothing in this paragraph shall be construed to limit the authority of the Secretary, so forth and so on. So if we were to decide the case, your basic submission, we would either have to say that something in 1152A1 limits the authority of the Secretary or it doesn't. Well, I would say that the answer to that question, uh, Justice Stevens, is, is provided for in Roadway Express, where, the, where the, this Court stated that the fact that a statute may — that Congress often uh, enacts statutes that purport to interpret uh, what a provision means and tells a court how to interpret what a provision means. But that does not make the statute any the more retroactive than any other type of congressional enactment. No, but, it, but you're still asking us to construe a statute in a way directly contrary to the way Congress has told us we should construe it. Well, with respect to what happened before, it, it doesn't be say, but there's no time. It just talks about people who are going to construe this statute, and you're asking us to construe this statute. Well, I am asking, the, what I am saying is, is that in Roadway Express, the Court specifically adopted a very similar type of statute that, in, that informed the Court as to how the statute should be construed. The Court stated that that did not apply to conduct that had predated the statute. In other words, the statute cannot make lawful. Mr. Wolf, are you saying there is no such thing as a clarifying amendment? I mean, here we had a sharp division in the D.C. Circuit, with excellent opinions on both sides, saying what the judges thought this statute meant. And Congress then came in and said, we think that the dissent had it right about what the statute meant. That's a clarifying amendment. So whether that controls us, and I agree with you it doesn't, it is the Congress saying we think that the statute did and should mean what the dissenting judge thought it meant. Which, which, Justice Ginsburg, is exactly what happened in Roadway Express. I mean, certainly the uh, Congress could inform this Court. Did did you cite Roadway Express in your papers? Yes, it's, it's, it's cited in the uh, supplemental brief. So in the supplemental brief. Thank you. Mr. Wolf, two things occur to me. Uh, one is the point you've just been discussing with Justice Ginsburg, which is that uh, conceivably the amendment by Congress should 
assist the courts in determining the meaning of the statute as it was originally enacted. That is possible. Secondly, um, what the respondents are seeking, ultimately, is issuance of visas. Now, that hasn't occurred as yet. And if the court were to order the Department of State to issue visas, that relief is prospective. And as I understand it, we have held that an amendment like this would apply to the issuance of that prospective relief. I don't think there's any way to avoid that by trying to look backwards and say, well, the statute meant something else at the time. Uh, the relief, nonetheless, is prospective and, and would appear to be governed by the new provisions of the statute. Taking the first, of your, taking the first part mm-hmm. of your question first, uh, as this Court indicated in Rosella, the, Rosello, the um, interpretations of a future con- of a new Congress are a hazardous ground upon which to base interpretations of a previous Congress. With respect to, to the second part of your question, certainly injunctive relief, like all relief, uh, compensatory damages, operates in the future. But there's nothing that prevent that, that in this statute that deprives the Court of the power to remedy a past violation of the wrong. In all of the cases that, that in, in which, to which I believe uh, you're referring, Justice O'Connor, the statute specifically eliminated a remedy. But in our case, there's nothing in Section 633 that eliminates a remedy. It simply informs the Court of how Congress would like the Court to construe the statute. But if Congress wanted the Court, wanted to apply that retroactively, the uniform decisions of this Court are that it must say so expressly. And there is nothing in Section 633 My that does that. My point was not that, but rather that the statute at, uh, applies prospectively and would govern the issuance of prospective relief. The st- well, this Court has also held in numerous occasions, Justice O'Connor, that if Congress wants to take away a remedy, that it also must do so expressly. And again, there is nothing about Section 633 that takes away a remedy. It simply informs this Court of how the statute should be construed. And that is why I think River Express is dispositive on this point. With respect to the issue of whether well, but or not if, 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 if you take uh, the uh, surrounding legislative history, it's perfectly clear that Congress intended to disapprove the decision of the Court of Appeals in this case, is it not? Well, e- even in Roadway Express, the, the, the Court mentioned, stated that even if Congress disapproves of a, of a previous opinion, that doesn't mean that it's retroactive. And the only expressions of legislative intent that we've seen, really, are two statements of congressmen who were opposed to the bill which also uh, this Court has... Uh, which, which you cite in your brief. Which the Department cites in its brief. Well, I thought, I thought you cite in your brief, too, didn't you, at footnote 13? Oh, that was, that was a letter previous to the, to the enactment of the bill. Those for, also for, were you say, having recently become aware of the obscure provision, 45 congressmen, including 13 members of the House, sent a letter to the President August 1st, expressing the view that the Court of Appeals interpretation of 1152A1 was correct. Mm-hmm. Well, that's correct. That's correct. And, and the fact that, as, I, as I've indicated, the fact that Congress may have a view as to whether a particular decision is correct or incorrect doesn't answer the question as to whether or not the statute is retroactive. With respect to the issue of whether or not the Department's vol- policy 
is discriminatory and violated Section 1152A1 at the time. Section 1152A1 prohibits, provides that no person shall be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa on their basis of race, sex, and nationality. Section 1152A1, therefore, places nationality on the same footing as race and gender and prohibits discrimination with respect to all in the issuance of an immigrant visa. This policy is facially discriminatory. If a French person or a Chinese person is in Hong Kong and has been screened out, they can go to the U.S. consulate and — or could, prior to the change in the law — go to the U.S. consulate and have their visa processed. But if that person was a Vietnamese national and they were screened out or illegally in Hong Kong, they could not. They had to go back to Vietnam to have their visas issued and processed. Now, the Department argues that the, the fact that this policy took place in the context of the CPA and the unique circumstances facing the Vietnamese um, refu um, refugee crisis at the time justified its illegal policy. And then the Department makes this sort of funny argument that justification and discrimination are the same thing. But this Court has never considered just discrimination and justification as one question. There are two separate questions. The first question is, does the policy — is the policy facially discriminatory? Does it draw an explicit distinction between Vietnamese nationals and Laotian nationals, if, if Laotian nationals are in fact covered, and the nationals of other countries? And the answer to that must be yes. The second question, then, is does the policy — is the policy justified? Is there a, a compelling interest for the policy? What is the rationalization for the policy? But the, the statute prohibits discrimination in the issuance of a visa and does not allow exceptions for a rash, the rational basis that the Department prefers. And the Department's argument at any rate with respect to the comprehensive plan of action — In order to tell whether there's been discrimination, don't you have to first determine whether the two people are similarly situated? Doesn't that determination go in, necessarily go into the question of discrimination or not? Well, it seems to me that the statute places race, sex, and nationality as a category. And therefore, that — therefore, you cannot — you cannot differentiate between races, between genders. The statute prescribes that. Let me give an example. Think about, uh, the, of course, the Court's uh, uh, classic decisions in Hirabayashi and Korematsu. The Court specifically in Hirabayashi said, well, Japanese Americans are not similarly situated to other Americans. Well, that didn't mean that it wasn't discriminatory. The Department — But I do think when Congress — when Congress passed this statute, did it have in mind refusing to allow the State Department to carry on the ordinary country-by-country country distinctions that it makes in conducting foreign policy? I mean, it might have done. Well, well just but, as prior — But, I mean, is there any evidence that it did? Just as prior, there's no specific legislative history of this provision. I would say that the statute says what it says. No person — All right. If it says what it says, isn't all foreign policy discriminatory by nations? We treat some nations one way. We treat other nations another way. All foreign policy runs that way. Now, maybe this was to be an exception from ordinary foreign policy. But should we assume that that was so? Well, I, I, the language says what it says, and, and the courts should construe the, la the language as it says it. All right. Now, well, if it says what it says, wouldn't we normally assume that what it had in mind was the kind of discrimination forbidding that kind of discrimination that did exist in Korematsu, well, in not the kind of discrimination 
that is consistent with ordinary foreign policy, treating one nation differently from another. It seems doubtful to me, Justice Breyer, because the statute prohibits discrimination, and discrimination is a different concept than the rationalization for the particular conduct at issue. Even the Department does not maintain that under the statute a mere rational basis for its conduct would justify these particular types of distinctions. May, may I ask you just a factual question? I, I, perhaps I should know this, but supposing there were a Vietnamese who had been a longtime resident of Hong Kong, but it was not one of the boat people, could he be — could he apply for a visa in Hong Kong? If a Vietnamese was not a boat person? Yes. Well, there are a number of Vietnamese who came by bus and uh, — Now, say he'd lived there for the last 20 years. Oh, certainly, certainly. A Vietnamese boat person who was lawfully resident. No, not a boat person. I say a, 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 a Vietnamese. Well, if that's true, then it doesn't seem to me the discrimination is on the basis of nationality. Well, uh, Justice Stevens, if you take two people, uh, two nationals in the same circumstances, one Vietnamese who has been denied refugee status, one French who have been denied refugee status, the French person can walk into the consulate, get their visa, the Vietnamese person cannot. That seems to me to be facially discriminatory. But are you assuming the French person is also came uh, as a, was one of these migrants on the, in this, on one of the boat people? Well, uh, Justice Stevens, I can't see how the fact that somebody came from, by boat or by plane would Well, it's whether he comes within the terms of the CPA or not. Well, with respect to the CPA, again, that issue seems to me to go to the rational basis, to the justification for the conduct, not to the classification of the conduct. Well, but the, the class does not include all Vietnamese. It includes a subcategory of Vietnamese who fit into the CPA category. Yes, but with respect to the same subcategories of other countries, such as the same subcategory of French, the Vietnamese would be treated differently. Now, it is true that Vietnamese are under the rubric of the Comprehensive Plan of Action, but the plan, Comprehensive Plan of Action is addressed only to Vietnamese. But Mr. Wolf, does, haven't you already shown why this is worlds different from Korematsu? Because Korematsu applied to people who were citizens of the United States just as much as it applied to someone who had just reached the shore. So it was a blanket policy. And you, by giving the answer that a, a resident of Hong Kong from Vietnam, who'd been there for a while, was not involved in this uh, urgent departure, uh, would be treated like the Frenchman. Well, Justice Ginsburg, actually, um, as I recall in Korematsu and Hirabayashi, at at least one particular time, the classification only applied to Japanese on the West Coast who were rounded up and placed into um, into relocation centers. So the fact that it didn't also apply to Jap might not have also applied to Japanese on the East Coast would not have rendered the classification there any the less discriminatory. So I mean, in terms of the issue of whether this is discriminatory, there really should be uh, no, no question. With respect to the CPA argument anyway, it, it appears to be purely, purely pretextual. At pages 116 and 117 of the Joint Appendix, the Department was was inquiring, received an inquiry from its consulate as to whether or not the processing of a screened-out boat person would violate the CPA. The Department said that the, to require such a boat person to return to Vietnam to have their visas processed was procedural little overkill and not at all necessary to the integrity of the CPA. And in fact, during four years of the CPA's existence, from 1989 to 1993, the Department processed visa applications in Hong Kong, and the Department processes visa applications in Hong Kong of nationals from other countries, such as Great Britain, England, uh, I mean, from Great Britain, from Hong Kong itself, 
from Australia. Uh, so all of these visas are being processed in Hong Kong. It's hard to understand why this violates the CPA. It seems to me that the Department's argument with respect to the CPA would certainly encourage more people to come out if they know once they get in Hong Kong where they have safe refuge, they can apply for a visa to the United States from there. I thought that's, that's the pur purpose well, of the State Department's policy, well, just to, Scalia, to discourage people from coming out. Justice Scalia, that gets directly to my point, that the Department seems to complete confusing the justification for its policy with the issue of whether or not the policy is a discriminatory one. And with but isn't, isn't there something to what Mr. Needler said, that, you know, discrimination in one sense, you say someone has a discriminating taste, it can be a compliment. It simply means you can distinguish between different things. Invidious discrimination is something else. But to say that you have to draw, you can draw a bright line between the concept of discrimination and the term justification, I don't think is necessarily true. Well, it seems to me that it's a line, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, that this Court has drawn in numerous cases in the equal protection context, in the context of numerous statutes that prohibit discrimination. And, and in view of uh, Congress certainly uh, was aware of how uh, this Court interprets the meaning of discrimination when it passed its, the statute in 1965. Thank you, no Mr. Wolf. Uh, Mr. Needler, you have four minutes remaining. Uh, s several points, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, first of all, uh, in, in Landgraf, this Court said uh, when the intervening statute authorizes or affects the propriety of prospective relief, application of the new provision is not retroactive. So I mean, analytically, the question here is not one of retroactivity since prospective relief is being asked for, and that's what the Court is being asked to do. This statute, it, it, it specifically speaks to what a Court should do, whether, the, whether a Court can construe 1152A1 uh, to prohibit the Secretary from uh, establishing locations for the processing of visas, as Justice Stevens uh, But, Mr. Uh, Neva, to the extent that this is like a venue provision where you can have this process, uh, if, if Congress changes a venue rule while a case is in a tribunal, I assume the case would not have to be dismissed at, in midstream. That unless Congress said otherwise, the venue that was proper when the case was initiated would but, stay. But that would be that would I, I think be not to upset. I mean, again, that would be a question of statutory construction. It would not be a question of an injunctive action. It would be a question of a rule of procedure to be applied in an ongoing case, much like Landgraf speaking to what a court has to do has to decide at the time it's deciding a particular issue in a case. At the time the court decides venue, it decides venue, and the statute shouldn't read ba reach back and change that. This statute is not retroactive in the sense that people who got visas in 1993 during the interim period when, when, uh, when, con when the State Department had a contrary view will have those visas taken away and be sent back uh, to Hong Kong. This is, this is entirely prospective. And if there was any doubt about Congress's intent that this govern this case, the letter from the 45 members of Congress said that the amendment would overturn the adverse result in Lava. The State Department's letter said its amendment was intended to reverse the decision in Lava. Representative Smith said it was an attempt to overrule Lava. And Representative Conyers said it would have the immediate effect of requiring two dozen Vietnamese, precisely these two dozen Vietnamese in Hong Kong, to return uh, to Vietnam. There was no doubt that Congress intended and expected this to apply to this case. With respect to the question of discrimination, the, this only covers people who are screened out under the CPA. Screened out is a term of art under international uh, refugee matters, applying it here to this international agreement. It doesn't apply to other people who may be in Hong Kong, like, the, like a Vietnamese national who may have gotten there in other ways. Um, 
also, as, as the Chief Justice pointed out, this is not invidious discrimination by any means. The United Vietnamese have been the, uh, been the beneficiaries of United States immigration policy over the last 15 years to an extent that few other countries have matched. 1.2 million Vietnamese have entered the United States, including 400,000 who have departed from Vietnam during the orderly departure process. There is no way that this policy can be regarded as invidious discrimination against Vietnamese. It is designed to implement valid foreign policy. My last point is that the discussion in this case is, is, we think, underscores why this sort of case doesn't belong in court to begin with. This is a case challenging foreign policy and migration policy halfway around the world in a suit brought by uh, aliens in a foreign country objecting to the way in which their visas are being processed in a foreign country, a classic matter for which judicial review is precluded and has traditionally been committed to agency uh, discretion by law. And that rule cannot be circumvented by having the, the, a U.S. citizen who happens to have applied for a visa petition to file his or her own suit in U.S. courts. The Immigration Act makes clear that the visa petitioner's interest in a matter such as this is simply filing the visa petition and, and having the Attorney General determine whether the beneficiary of the visa petition would be entitled to a visa preference. Once that happens, the U.S. person's interest in the matter lapses. There is no further interest. The, the alien abroad is accorded a preference and stands entirely on his own or her own with respect to whether there will be any admission to the United States. In fact, the, the non-discrimination provision invoked here speaks in terms of, what, of discrimination or preferences with respect to the alien abroad. It confers, confers no rights on, on a U.S. citizen in the United States. So with respect to both respondents' APA claim and the statutory claim, review is precluded. Thank you, Mr. Needler. The case is submitted.